Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the commodities sector and the people within it. I'm your host, Paul Chapman. Today, we're going to talk about hydrogen. Historically, hydrogen has just been an industrial gas feedstock and a key polluter. However, now it's seen as a key tool to the route to decarbonisation, improving air quality and tackling climate change. And hydrogen has something for everyone. For oil and gas producers, it's a key source of revenue for their production. It can use existing infrastructure and even for the power generation industry where it can solve intermittency in renewables production and also could be a key consumer of renewables energy to create green hydrogen. Joining us to discuss is JJ Trainer. JJ is a founder and principal of Hydrogen One, an investment house focused on the sector and has 30 years in the energy sector and financial markets working for such operating companies as BP and Shell, and also working for investment bank Deutsche. JJ, thanks for joining us. Paul, thanks for the opportunity. Good to speak to you today. So so I guess before we talk about the future of hydrogen, can we talk a little bit about the past? What is the hydrogen market right now? And and what has it been over the last 100 years and some of its uses? Can you give us the background? Yeah, no, delighted. I mean, hydrogen was actually discovered in the 1760s by British scientist Cavendish, and about 100 years before him, Boyle actually identified it, but didn't really realise what uh, what he what he find what he found. So, this stuff goes back a long way. Today, it's widely used in high temperature industrial processes like chemicals manufacturing, steel, oil refining, and it's used as a coolant in the power sector. It's made by industrial gas companies, names like Linda and Air Products. It's a market of about 70 million tonnes per annum of hydrogen. Um, It's growing, but not growing spectacularly, 2.5% a year or so. About 40% of the hydrogen that's that's made is consumed in Asia-Pacific, and over 95% of it is made by reforming fossil fuels, Um, so coal or oil or natural gas, and all that's known as grey hydrogen. Uh, and it costs about a dollar to two dollars per kilo to make. So that that is the hydrogen market today. So at the moment, I mean, it's fair to say that it is part of the problem, you know, rather than in any way a part of the solution. I mean, hi- yes. I mean, hydrogen manufacturing currently emits about eight hundred and thirty million tons a year of CO two, and uh, I think we both have British accents. That's roughly two times the annual emissions of all of the UK are emitted by the, the hydrogen manufacturing industry. So it, it is a pretty su- substantial emitter. And that's because it is essentially derived from crude oil and natural gas or from the oil industry. Correct. You, you, you crack hydrocarbons, coal, oil or natural gas, take out the hydrogen and, and release the rest into the atmosphere. So how long has this idea been about, I assume since also the 1760s, that you could essentially burn hydrogen and your byproducts would be water. It would be a non-polluting fuel if you could get at it. I think a couple of things have really changed that, that have pushed hydrogen right up the list of things to do as, as used as a fuel rather than purely as an industrial feedstock. And Paul, I'd identify three, three, three things really that are pushing this, this thing forward. So the, the aftermath of the Paris Agreement, the COP21 Agreement, and the pathways that uh, are being set by many governments around the world to net zero, 
and the realization obviously that hydrogen can play a big part in that in displacement of fossil fuels. Secondly, the air quality agenda. So the, the reality that, that fossil fuels in things like cars and trucks and buses and power plants are actually not good for human health. Particularly in the COVID world, the human health agenda is right up, uh, right up on the list of things for people to think to think about. And hydrogen has a big role to play in, in all of that. And then I think thirdly, innovation. We're moving into a, a world here of, of lower and lower cost electricity from renewable sources, so wind and solar. And as that electricity price comes down, there's a whole other way of making hydrogen. So rather than cracking fossil fuels, you can do electrolysis and, and release uh, hydrogen and oxygen from water using electricity. So it's, it's the political climate, it's the, it's the human health environment and the innovation, which I think all together are putting hydrogen right back on the map uh, as, as an energy source. Forecasters like investment banks, Barclays, for example, or industry bodies like the IEA, see an eight times increase in hydrogen demand out to 2050. And companies like BP, who make projections as to the energy mix in the, in the future, think that up to 10% of, of energy supply could actually be coming from hydrogen now by 2050. So, so quite some change out there. And I think it's those multiple factors that, that are driving the hydrogen wave that we're seeing today. How long has hydrogen been in the zeitgeist? It just seems over the last two years or so, or even the last, really this year, that it's become so dominant and prevalent in media, in the news, in the discussion around decarbonization. Is this something that's just really come to the fore recently or has this been in the energy companies being focused on hydrogen for quite some time look i think there's again there's multiple multiple factors the the the, the paris agreement in 2015 i think was a key moment in the energy world governments came away from from that cop 21 meeting not not with exact top-down targets but with an agreement to set their own frameworks and their own targets to get to net zero and, you know, to uptake on that in, in, at different rates uh, in different parts of the world, at a country level, at a, at a state level. And, and companies reacted to that as well. They could see that, that you know, there's a, there's a change coming here and it's a societal change. And where we are today, over 66 countries actually have net zero targets in place now for 2050. And 18 governments so far have set regional hydrogen strategies uh, as part of those net zero targets. So there's a big, big change on the on the political side. And then at an, at an industrial level, I mean, what, one barometer of, of industry enthusiasm for this is a, is a group called the Hydrogen Council, uh, which is a CEO forum. Guess what? Discusses hydrogen. And there are now over 90 members of the Hydrogen Council, CEOs from industrial companies, um, from fossil fuel companies, and, and you know, a whole spectrum of, of supply chain companies. So there's a real shift, I think. And I, I would just put, put, a, put my finger on COP21 and, and the aftermath of that. That's the real, the real change. Hydrogen isn't new. I mean, I, I think you put, put your finger on it. Um, you know, the big oil companies, uh, Shell, uh, for example, have been involved in hydrogen for many years, but not, not at any material scale, more, more on an R&D uh, type scale. But I think things are really changing. If I were to really break it down, just I think it's so crucial we get this right. On the production side, it really matters 
how and from where it's produced. And that's where technology has really unlocked this industry to some extent. On the consumption side, it's kind of a super fuel. It's got a variety of different applications, whether that's as a direct fuel for transportation or whether it's in, in generation. I, I just want to really sort of dig into this area. Yeah, let, let me go through a couple of things. There's how it's produced and, and all the different aspects there. And then the, the, the drivers as, as to why there is this strong demand pull for, for hydrogen as a, as a commodity, which is the climate change agenda. There's the air quality agenda. So let, let me go through some of those um, aspects in a bit more detail. Firstly, on the production side, I would just identify four different types of hydrogen. There's a lot of jargon in this in this area, but they're really basically four types and, and they're color coded. Gray, blue, green and turquoise. Gray, I think we've touched on, that's taking fossil fuels, extracting the hydrogen and then releasing the, the, the rest into the atmosphere. So greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. That's what's widely used today to make hydrogen using a process called steam methane reforming. Um, blue hydrogen uses steam methane, steam methane reforming. So it takes natural gas, but instead of releasing the uh, greenhouse gas byproduct, that greenhouse gas is captured and it's stored geologically in depleted oil and gas reservoirs or in, the, or in salt caverns. So that's blue hydrogen. Green hydrogen, very different. This uses renewable electricity, so from wind and solar, and using an, an electrolysis process makes hydrogen with a byproduct oxygen. In other words, no GHG emission, hence the name green hydrogen. And then turquoise hydrogen, which I think is a bit further in the future, actually, is a pyrolysis process whereby natural gas is converted into hydrogen. And the byproduct, rather than being a greenhouse gas, is actually solid carbon, which can be stored uh, or, or used uh, for an, other, other manufacturing processes. So those are the four main types. There are plenty of variations out there. One of the emerging ones, which I think is very interesting, is steam methane, steam methane reforming of renewable natural gas. So natural gas that's derived from fermentation of wood chips and, and, and waste products. I think that's pretty small scale, but that, that is a technology to keep to keep an eye on. So those are the those are the major sources of, of hydrogen. In terms of the, the demand pull and you know wh where does where does this stuff go? Decarbonisation is one, and air quality uh, is another, and, and there are some interlinkages here. Uh, Decarbonisation, basically use of hydrogen for transport fuel, uh, for power generation as an industrial feedstock, and, and for heating. And those processes are, are either using fuel cells, so fuel cells which take in hydrogen and, and uh, make, make electricity, uh, and water as a byproduct. Or, or burning the hydrogen in turbines in, in, in large-scale power plants. So you can see the fossil fuels being displaced by hydrogen in, in those parts of the energy system. One, one spin-out of, of that is the ability of, of hydrogen to act as a system buffer. So as you know, wind and solar, which, which can be used to make green hydrogen, wind and solar are intermittent, the sun shines, the sun doesn't shine, the wind blows, the wind doesn't blow. By converting that electricity or converting that, that renewable electricity into hydrogen, the hydrogen can then be stored either in the existing natural gas pipeline networks, so that's called power to gas, 
It could be stored geologically in salt caverns and so forth, or it can be converted into ammonia, which is a more more readily transportable uh, li- liquid than, than than liquefied hydrogen. So there's this storage and system buffering aspect uh, to the hydrogen uh, economy, uh, as well as as well as its use as a fuel. Which is again, is where kind of one of the fascinating things about this is that, unlike say, for example, batteries, hydrogen can lean on, lean into existing infrastructure as well you, you know this is this is kind of the energy company's ideal solution in some ways and I, and I guess we'll come on to that just before we do that and i know i'm asking quite prosaic questions but it, i think it's i think it's really important to kind of get some of this stuff down when it comes to transportation what form is the hydrogen going to be delivered to cars trucks whatever it might be compressed gas um, so, uh, uh, again, this is not not a not a te- not a technology step out. So, CNG is widely used. So compressed natural gas is widely used in trucks around the world. LPG, liquefied petroleum gases, and so what you have is is a pressurized cylinder in your in your car uh, or, or your truck, and and hydrogen is pressurized into that cylinder. So, so very 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 established technologies. So, you mentioned the fuel cell there. How long has that been around and, and kind of what prevalence are we talking? Well, look, f- fuel cells have been around uh, since the 1960s. Actually, NASA used hydrogen fuel cells on the Gemini program, believe it or not. Again, being a Houston-based person, you'll, you'll, uh, you'll resonate with that very well, I think, Paul. And then General Motors built the first fuel cell vehicle in the in the mid 1960s it was a minivan that looked a bit like the mystery machine if you're a scooby-doo fan so so this technology has been around a long time again i might go back to the air quality point and, and what a strong pull that is on, on demand for cleaner vehicles in in urban environments fuel cells sales have increased five times uh, since 2014 but even so, there are still less than half a million fuel cell vehicles on the roads today. If you look at projections made by, not by us, but made, made, by, made by third parties, 10, 10 million fuel cell vehicles before 2030. And these will be trucks, vans, uh, and, and cars, and actually the forklift market. That 10 million figure is small in the totality of the transport fleet. But, you know, as an investor, the, the growth rate that comes from that is obviously very, very attractive. And that would be a relatively simple step, as you say, to kind of start decarbonizing the, the transport fleet. And in a minute, if you can map out for us kind of the, the timelines here, but you've got this nirvana-like state of when you can actually produce all the hydrogen you need through renewable power sources and convert it you know either as a storage for the renewable power source itself you know replacing batteries to tackle that intermittency or you know that hydrogen also just goes into the, the grid the pipeline system and it can be used as fuels and generation elsewhere can we talk about timelines here because as i understand it you know, the transportation piece is probably much closer to the future than to now than that nirvana like state of all of our electrolysis producing hydrogen and and that being the ultimate energy currency yeah, look, I think I think the the air quality issue is a very very important demand pull on hydrogen now, and you know there's some slightly grim observations here, Paul. So, ambient air quality is responsible, or poor ambient air quality is responsible for over four million premature deaths per year. So these are World Health Organization statistics. About a third of all deaths from lung disease, so specifically lung cancer 
and about a quarter of all deaths from stroke actually come from poor ambient air quality. And this, of course, is, is trucks, uh, it's cars, it's power plants in, in the urban environment, particularly a problem in Asia, uh, especially India and China. But not only in Asia, if you travel across Europe and try and drive in London these days, there's, a, there's an ultra-low emission zone and there's a low emission zone around the ultra-low emission zone. This is all about reducing diesel in, the, in London's city centre because the city actually has fallen below the EU air quality standards. Paul, I think you're in, you're in Houston, if I'm, if I'm correct. I don't want to alarm you, but one of the metrics for, for ambient air quality is a thing called PM2.5, and that's particulate matter that measures below 2.5 micrograms. These particles go into your lungs, they get into your bloodstream, uh, and they cause a wide variety of health, health effects directly linked to heart and lung disease and early death. You may be alarmed to know that, that Houston, the, in 2019, Houston actually exceeded its PM2.5 recommendations under the WHO definitions in three of the 12 months of 2019, so November, December and March. And actually, uh, a group called the Environmental Defence Fund and the Harvard School of Public Health estimated that in 2015 in Houston, there were 5,000 premature deaths as a result of poor air quality. So I don't want to put you off your, uh, off your afternoon tea, but, but th- those are some quite um, stark observations. We, I've mentioned it a couple of times. I think one of the fascinating things of COVID was a stark demonstration for those couple of months in, in, in or a couple of you know, March and April, globally, when we saw a world without the, the day-to-day impact of transportation. And it was remarkable how quickly it changed. So I think perhaps we've had a little bit of a glimpse into what the world could be like. And, you know, hydrogen seems like that it's kind of this a great fit for the existing infrastructure and, and you know, for tackling that particular problem of air quality, which, of course, itself is actually married to and very closely linked with, with CO2 emissions and climate change. Well, I think that's right. And, and look, ba- battery electric will work or does work very well for light vehicles over short distances. Battery electric is much less effective for heavier vehicles uh, and heavier vehicles, particularly over long distances. And so hydrogen uh, in trucks and buses and I think ultimately in trains alongside battery electric in cars is the way to to address that air quality issue in these urban environments. And you know, coming to your question of the timescales, we, we at Hydrogen One, we think this is a very powerful pull on, on hydrogen demand now and, and kind of irrespective of the source of the hydrogen. So this is about cleanup of, of city centres and the hydrogen that's used for that could be sourced from a, from a variety of the, of the methods that, that I talked about. Over the period 20 to 2020 to 2025, green and blue hydrogen is going to move out of the pilot stage and into full deployment. And we see a number of projects like in, in both of those categories on, you know, on the table in Europe, in the Middle East uh, and, and in North America. Transport, so trucks, forklifts and, and cars um, are out of the pilot stage and are seeing deployment um, around the world. You, you can buy a, a Toyota fuel cell truck, you can buy a Hyundai fuel cell truck. Uh, a little bit further out in the future, flight 
using hydrogen, so turboprop uh, into fuel cells. We would see that as a 2025 to 2030 commercialization, and then potentially jet beyond, uh, beyond 2030. On power generation, there are some substantial power plants uh, under construction that, that use hydrogen in their turbines in the Netherlands, in Japan, in the, in the United States. So again, moving out of the pilot phase very quickly there and building heat, again, coming down the tracks very quickly. So I think over the next decade, perhaps, perhaps, perhaps shorter, you're going to see quite a broad deployment of hydrogen technology into the energy system. And I assume... For the most part, that is going to be driven by blue hydrogen or turquoise. But this, you know, I guess where you're converting existing hydrocarbon production, sequestrating the carbon piece, and that's the source? Or do you see green hydrogen being the, which hydrogen is going to dominate the market in those, that timescale? I think it depends where you are around the world. I mean, there, there are some substantial industrial sites um, that have been put together for the for the oil and gas industry. So offshore fields, pipelines, refinery sites, petrochemical plants, the, those can be modified and, and reinvested to produce blue hydrogen, particularly where they're, they're, uh, they're closely affiliated with, uh, with depleted reservoirs. Those sites can also be used for electrolysis to manufacture green hydrogen, but you know, I think primarily blue at this stage. On a cost basis, and in the end, energy is very, is very customer-led, it's very, very price-sensitive. The reality is that grey hydrogen, so the stuff we use now, $1 to $2 per kilo, if you add in carbon capture and storage and turn that into blue hydrogen, so that's that turns the one to two dollar cost to a two to three dollar cost, so kind of in the same range. And green hydrogen is structurally more expensive today, so think six six dollars per kilo, maybe 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 a touch higher. So we do think that green hydrogen prices are going to uh, fall. Green hydrogen costs are going to fall over time as that industry scales up. But in the meantime, look, blue, blue hydrogen on a, on a price and um, an availability basis uh, seem, seems to be a good scaled way to go here. It's kind of interesting because it strikes me that you've had, roughly speaking, two camps when we talk about sort of the, the energy future. And it's those that are electron focused. It's going to be really an electron only world. And this hydrogen view is different to that. What does hydrogen have? benefits-wise over just really pushing on electrons, batteries, all the rest of it? So let me give you a slightly broader answer to that to that question. And um, we, we think of these things as uh, not, not as, a, as an either-or, but, but in there as well. Timescales are often very underestimated in the energy industry. So, so energy systems take a long, long time to change. And this is because of incumbent technologies and incumbent infrastructure and, and just the time it can take to mature technologies. So if you look at the wind industry as an example, the first commercial wind farm was actually in 1975. It was built in 1975 in the US. But wind as a way of generating electricity had actually been around since the 1900s in Denmark. Today, if you take wind and solar together, and despite all of the investments and all of the growth that you've seen in, in wind and solar, it's actually together less than 5% of global energy supply. And those are the kinds of timescales and types of scaling that you, know, you see in the, in the energy industry. 
it's the growth rate that makes it attractive uh, for investors. Obviously, getting to 5% energy supply in, in wind and solar is, is, is a near doubling, uh, or like a 3x in the last 10 years. But in terms of the energy mix, it's still a very small, a very small part of the story. Going forward, you're going to need all of these energy uh, sources to match off energy demand as we move into a net zero world. I think it's important to bear in mind that energy demand actually grows annually. It's very, very much linked to GDP. So you've got to meet rising demand, rising aspirations for people in, in the world for better quality of living, which of course goes hand in hand with access to, to cheap and reliable energy sources. And you've got to do it in a way that takes out CO2 out of the system. So I think hydrogen's part of the mix. And I gave you a kind of a 10% figure for, for the scale of hydrogen out to 2050. Could be as low as 7%, could be as high as 15%, but you know, 10% feels about right. And alongside that, you are going to need uh, low, low emissions hydrocarbons. So you're going to need CCS to take the CO2 out of the hydrocarbon system. And you're going to need nuclear power and more wind and, and more solar. So I, I think there's, there's a very broad front that's going to be needed here to decarbonize the energy system. What's fascinating as well is if you look at the renewable power world, the IRR in that segment is pretty low compared to what the oil and gas industry are used to, right? You're talking, making you know up numbers here, but sort of a 6 to 9% return compared to a 25 30% return. And hydrogen is much more congruent, much easier to transition to for an oil producer, right? It's just, I mean, it's pretty much the same infrastructure. It's just that carbon capture, as you mentioned, compared to trying to do that full shift into electrons. What do you think, from a commercial standpoint, from a policy standpoint, will it take for hydrogen to match those predictions that you made, but also exceed them? I think a lot of the uh, ingredients um, are actually on the table today. And it's it's not a story that, that you need a dramatic shift in government policy or, or a, a dramatic shift in, in, in company strategy to, to, to get to where, where where I think and where many many maybe many people think the hydrogen industry is going to go. I mean what you what you need is joined up government policy and industry planning. It's very collaborative. If you look at the big green hydrogen projects that are being discussed in, in Europe, for example. These are offshore and onshore projects, so offshore wind and onshore electrolyzers with the permitting that, that goes with, them, with with both of those. Different companies are doing the offshore and the onshore, and then perhaps the third company is the offtaker. So it's a very collaborative uh, in, in environment. To get things like that moving, you need a very coherent, joined-up set of government policies and obviously the right fiscal structures um, and incentives in place to, 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 make it, to make it all happen. I think those ingredients are there. It, it's different in different parts of the world. But I would just highlight the European Union, Australia, parts of the United States, parts of Canada, obviously Japan, South Korea, China, where, where this is moving apace and, and, and uh, moving along very, very nicely. Just as an aside, does, does that mean that natural gas will, in over time, as we go through this transition, be relatively worth more than oil? because it's actually easier to convert into hydrogen? Is that a fair statement? I would be a bit careful. Natural gas typically trades at a calorific discount to crude oil. 
And the re the reason for that is, is that crude oil is is a more flexible fuel and more flexible fuel feedstock. It's cheaper to transport it, and you can make more things out of it than you can out of natural gas. The demand barrel for crude oil is changing here. So you know what was a gasoline economy and an aviation fuel economy probably becomes more of a petrochemical feedstock economy for for the oil guys over time. But I would. Be a little bit reluctant to say that the natural gas would become a premium fuel over crude because of its translatability into uh, into hydrogen, if nothing else, because there's just so much natural gas out there, and, and that that's what tends to set the price, more particularly in your part of the world. Another way to look at it is is the ability of gas rich regions, natural gas rich regions, and renewable energy rich regions to actually convert that energy and that natural gas into ammonia or hydrogen and actually export it. And I think governments in, in, in the Middle East and some Asia-Pacific countries are realizing that they've actually got a new natural resource that they can continue to export you know, beyond the market that they can see for, for their hydrocarbon products. So you've got this, definitely we see policies globally continuing to support hydrogen. From a commercial standpoint, it's got those multiple uses and production and existing infrastructure. How big is hydrogen as a conversation at the C-suite of the world's energy producers right now? I think what's, I mean, I wouldn't for a moment pretend to be in the C-suite of major energy producer. The, the, many of those, having said that, many of those large oil and gas companies are um, under tremendous pressure from, from their shareholders, from their boards uh, around the low profitability off of today's business mix. So low, you know, low oil prices in this COVID world, low natural gas prices. And, and we've seen you know, many, uh, many companies coming under pressure from credit rating agencies on the dividends, on the capital spending programs, on the cost structures. And so I think that those rather classical financial framework discussions are probably what's what's dominating those C-suite discussions. At the same time, different in different companies around the world, but there is a general trend towards cleaning up the portfolios of the of the major oil and gas companies and, and implementing plans for energy transition. It may be too simplistic, but the, the, the it does appear that the European-based large oil and gas companies are moving more quickly on this one than the North America-based oil and gas companies. It's not mutually exclusive, but there there is that there is that observation. And in in that mix, the the ones that are moving more quickly to decarbonize, typically selling down their more carbon-intensive oil positions investing more in growth natural gas and in the medium term investing more in renewables and in, in that renewable space hydrogen is very much part of the thinking so if you look at the the portfolio plans of companies like ecuador uh, like shell uh, like bp you see hydrogen uh, flashing quite brightly uh, on the list of, uh, of things to do yeah whether it's tied to transportation or actually as you say electron generation and uh, look i think i think a lot of what they're, they're, they're focusing on and again i got not in those c-suites but it, it seems to me it's about extending the lives of their current asset bases so how do i reconfigure my refinery site how do i extend the life of my offshore infrastructure is there is there a hydrogen angle to play in there and so that's where blue hydrogen um, obviously comes into its full a key bit here is going to be 
how the capital markets support the industry at a time when capital markets, whether it's private equity or whomever, are pulling away from traditional, conventional hydrocarbon businesses. You're founding an investment house solely focused on this. What do you? What is the role of private equity, of investment houses, of capital to support the market? And and why actually is it? I mean, why have you created Hydrogen One? Why is it an attractive space? Well, look, no, th- thanks to the question, Paul. We, we myself and, uh, and a gentleman called Richard Hulf founded Hydrogen One in the middle of 2020. And what we've uh, identified is that although, e- even though there is this tremendous growth opportunity in hydrogen and a lot of interesting things happening, it's actually not easy to get invested in it if you're if you're a player in the main market. So there are 15 or 20 you know, globally listed pure hydrogen companies that make the fuel cells, that make the electrolyzers and the component parts. So there are some of those names, but, but frankly, not, not very many. And then there's a lot happening on the private side. So innovation companies in electrolyzers and fuel cells, developer companies putting these projects together. But those private positions are quite hard to get access to if you're if you're a main market investor. And so Hydrogen One is actually designed to give investors access to both, so to the listed companies and, and the private positions and get that exposure to that growth play in a trend that, that's very much ESG compliant. So there's no fossil fuels emission in this portfolio, and, and this is very much a play on the energy transition. So we're, we've put this thing together to give um, investors access to all that. We're t- trying to democratize hydrogen and, and give a, a broader invest- investor base access to this, um, this very, very exciting trend. Fabulous. Well, it's been a real pleasure having you on the show. It's a fascinating subject, I know, to to us as a firm, but to the community at large. And uh, I really appreciate you helping us understand it a bit better and giving us an outlook to the future. All right. Not at all. Thanks for the opportunity. Thanks, JJ. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support the show, please give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To find out more about HC Insider and Human Capital, a search firm dedicated to the commodities sector, go to www.hcinsider.global, where you'll find more original content on the commodities sector and more details on our offering as a search firm and our locations around the world. Thanks again for listening.